Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome. I'd like to welcome our international listeners and also remind you that we are on Facebook Live at Resiliency Within if you want to see Bob Doppelt and I in person. I want to start out by just acknowledging that in September of 2023, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Florida experienced devastation to their communities from hurricanes. Extreme weather events, floods, hurricanes, and disasters like wildfires are linked to a broad range of adverse mental health outcomes. Many types of persistent severe stressors are also rising due to the climate emergencies. And my guest today, Bob Doppelt, who is the founder and coordinator of the International Transformation Resilience Coalition, which we will call the ITRC, because Bob, that's a mouthful, ITRC, will discuss why community-based initiatives that use a public health approach to build population-level mental health wellness and transformational resilience are important approaches to combat widespread harmful mental health and psychosocial problems generated by the climate emergencies. I want to say a little bit about Bob. For almost a decade, he directed the Climate Leadership Initiative and taught systems thinking and global warming policy at the University of Oregon. He's kind of, he's an interesting hybrid. He is trained both as a counseling psychologist and environmental science. And I think these two fields came to him in order for him to be the leader that he is about how we can look at the mental health challenges that, that happen as a result of climate emergencies. And in, in 2015, he was named one of the, Bob, this is pretty impressive, one of the 50 most talented social innovators by the World CRS Congress. His latest book, Preventing and Healing Climate Traumas, A Guide for Building Resilience and Hope in Communities, will be available hopefully April, March or April of 2023. We actually have the same publisher and we're working at the same deadline, so we'll see what happens. But we're hoping in the spring that his book will be published. So today, he will share why the ITRC supports the Community Mental Wellness and Resiliency Act. I'm going to say it again. The Community Mental Wellness and Resiliency Act that was introduced to Congress just last week by a bipartisan effort of Representative Paul Tonko and Representative Brian Fitzpatrick. I want to say this was a bipartisan effort, which is very exciting to know about. And so Bob's going to share with us the important elements of this act. But before we do that, Bob, I'm going to ask you my question. I always ask my guests to begin with. Anything particularly on your mind today before we get into some of our planned questions? Well, first, Elaine, thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for all the the work you do and TRI, Trauma Resource Institute, has done over the years. For all of you listening, Elaine has been a, a, a core member of the ITRC uh, since the inception, yes. uh, and uh, one of the very first uh, people and organizations to join, and has really done tremendous work, as you all know, probably your, your listeners know. So I just want to thank you for that. And 
uh, the, I guess what's on my mind today is just how do we uh, move forward in reducing the mental health and psychosocial impacts we see from the tremendous amount of stresses, persistent overwhelming stresses that people all over the world are experiencing that climate change is adding to and aggravating <clears throat> because we're seeing problems everywhere uh, and uh, uh, we know what we can do to, about them. How do we move forward in implementing these approaches that we know can work? Well, so let me ask you this question as we're getting started. So in the U.S. and other nations, like I'm thinking about Pakistan that has had terrible floods over the last few months. Um, so many places are experiencing a significant rise in mental health and psychosocial problems. And, you know, why is this happening? What is your opinion with your, you know, again, your hybrid environmental sciences and psychology? What, why do you think this is happening right now at this time? Well, it's a very good question. I, I don't know that much about what's happening in Pakistan. I can speak about Western nations, but other nations also. But I think what's really important to understand is the, the medical model of health has focused uh, us on, and, and our profession, and I was trained in this, in the sort of genetic and interpersonal family uh, issues, child-parent issues, as the, cause, the dominant cause of mental health uh, and psychosocial problems. Uh, but what we now know, what is very clear, especially if you look back in time and look, look at what's happening now, is that actually uh, these problems result from the, comp the, uh, the, the uh, integration of and the complex interactions between personal, genetic factors, family dynamics, but also social norms and policies, the communities that people live in, uh, the economic situations they experience, uh, the political situations they experience, the, uh, and the uh, ecological factors. Every country, every uh, community differs in its culture, its norms and practices based on the kind of ecology that it lives in. It, it, it's different in areas that live, are very dry versus temperate rainforests, et cetera. But so all of those factors today are interacting. You could say it's the, there was an old statement uh, by uh, James Carvel uh, in about politics. It's, just, it's the economy, stupid. Remember years ago in the U.S.? <laughs> yeah. It's the environment, that. stupid. That is to say that all of the environment around us is what produces those mental health and psychosocial problems. But what, if we only focus on the individual then and don't address these other factors, we're going to have limited effect. And I think that's what's happening. The climate emergency is aggravating all of those other personal, social, cultural, economic, built, physical, you know, the infrastructure and communities, et cetera, and economic and ecological factors. Uh, and, but all of those are very stressed today, uh, uh, stressful today, and are being stressed out, those factors. And we have to, so we have to really think systemically Think about all those issues and factors at once and respond holistically, if you will. Respond to all of them uh, in some way, not just to the individual. So we have to have a multifaceted approach is what I'm hearing from you. And I know I've worked you know, very hard for this idea as well, because if we only look at it as an individual person impacted by, let's say, a hurricane, of course, they may have lost their home, their job, and that is a horrible thing. We want to help them. But if we don't look at the social policies that go along, let's say to even providing assistance. I was talking to a person recently that um, 
really had severe damage to her home during Hurricane Florence. And she was sharing um, with me how she had to get a, a, a loan out. She thought that there was going to be more help from, uh, uh, you know, organizations like FEMA that does do it, that is helpful. But at the same time, she had mold in her house and FEMA didn't cover mold from the water, of course, that comes in. And so you go, well, goodness gracious, why wouldn't you have a policy that would cover mold that would help that person reconstruct their life? But I mean, I think that's kind of the limited kind of blinder thinking if we think, oh, this is all that we cover when it really does impact so many aspects of a person's not only personal life, their community life, and really their societal life in that respect. So I couldn't agree more with you. And I guess that leads me to my next question, which are climate change generated mental health problems mostly caused by acute disasters or are persistent overwhelming or toxic stresses also a key cause? Yeah, thank you for that question, Elena. That, that's very important. The disasters capture our attention, obviously, the most, uh, that we get the most news about it, et cetera, and they're the most distressing because uh, events because they're obvious. They are very important. Um, uh, for up to 40% of the people who are directly impacted by a disaster can experience a mental health or psychosocial problem. Uh, and even people who uh, observe the event from afar or know someone who is impacted uh, can experience severe distress or traumas. Um, but actually, even more, just as importantly, or even more importantly, are these toxic stresses, as we call it in the mental health field, these uh, severe, persistent stresses that just make it very difficult to uh, keep up with. And the thing is, that affects everyone. So just uh, those stresses affect everyone. So um, just as an example, I live in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. We have had wildfires raging uh, most of the summer and in all the previous summers because of this long-term drought which is likely to continue for the rest of the decade, by the way. Um, and, uh, uh, and so the fires, the wildfires affect people living, that's a disaster affecting people living close by. But smoke from the wildfire has gone out and affected the mental health and physical health of people throughout the entire Pacific Northwest, all the way up into Canada and down into California. So it impacts everyone. So the disasters are interconnected with and, and mixed in with these uh, uh, population-wide toxic stresses. And then in a different year, uh, different parts of the population will experience one of these disasters. So that's the mixture we have. And we have to focus on both. Uh, and we uh, and you cannot just do disaster mental health, meaning respond to the disaster. We have to prepare everybody for what is already happening and coming our way by addressing what you call these multi-systemic uh, yes. approaches. That's what's critical. We need well, you know, multi-systemic <laughs> approaches. Well, you know, and as you're talking about that, I was just talking to um, one of my um, daughters, um, the moms on. Um, her daughter's soccer team. And she was saying how her son has had the most terrible asthma. And, you know, she had had to go to the um, like emergency room twice. So why does, why do, why do, why does asthma happen? Of course, there's many things that cause asthma, but we know that when we have fires and we have the smoke that comes from fires and we've had, we've had fires in California. I know you've had right. a horrible time in Oregon. So what does that, what, do, what happens with the environment when someone has a condition like asthma? Does that, in, does that increase their chances of having 
problems breathing and an asthma attack? Well, of course it does. And so then you have going to the emergency room. You have the anxiety of the child and the parents. You you have the system of healthcare, which we were also talking about because there were like no rooms at the inn. So urgent care, you know, can be closed. And so then you have to go to the emergency room. I mean, I, I think that's just one, one, one system that I'm talking about regarding one condition that impacts someone in a multitude of ways, not only an individual, but a family, but also a societal policy of healthcare. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that into the conversation because sometimes we don't look at it like that. Right? We just look at as immediate disaster response. We see the images from Hurricane Florence. We see that there's first responders. But you and I both know that is just the beginning right. of what is to come. So anyway, I don't know your, if you want to make a comment on that or not. Well, yeah. I mean, this is the, the bad news. Um, this is difficult to, to understand and to, to get our heads around. But we are in the midst of a civilization-altering event. Um, Global temperatures are going to rise beyond the 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature threshold that climate scientists are very sure will unleash very severe and possibly even irreversible impacts. Um, The question is, can we implement solutions to the climate emergency now, which go well beyond just shifting out our our energy systems? Um, That's vital, but it's... and bring temperatures back down again to manageable levels after it overshoots. That's what climate scientists call this overshooting, climate overshoot, this threshold. Uh, So we have to prepare for it. What we're seeing now is just the beginning of very, very serious impacts that will impact everybody. It's a population level problem. Well, So let me say this. Do you think that you and I both agree that um, individualized mental health treatments, although very needed, um, are not enough? to deal with what we're talking about. Absolutely. They are very important. Um, uh, the individual clinical treatments and direct service programs, so social service programs are very, very important. They'll remain important. But even today, they can only help maybe at best a quarter of the people that, at least in the U.S., that need mental health or, so, or that kind of assistance. And as the climate emergency worsens, they'll be able to assist even fewer. So we have to take a different approach. Right. And so I just want to just kind of emphasize with our listeners is that there are not enough mental health providers to meet the need that will happen from these emergencies. Exactly. So we have to think outside the box about if that's the case, of course, we still need that. And if you are lucky enough to have the accessibility, the affordability, and the believability that that's something that can help you, then that's going to be an avenue that you might be able to take. But we know that there are enormous amounts of people that are not going to be able to do that. So let's talk a little bit about, um, so what are, why are community-based initiatives that use a public health approach to mental wellness and resilience needed, and how does that differ? Great. Good question. Thank you. Well, first of all, again, clinical treatment, uh, uh, direct service, human service programs will remain very important, but they will become much more effective if they're they become part of and are integrated in community-based initiatives. And what I mean by that and what what is meant by that in the field is that this involves engaging uh, local grassroots leaders, uh, neighborhood leaders, public, private, and nonprofit organization leaders in coalitions. We call them resilience coordinating coalitions, but each group calls it whatever they want. And by the way, 
this is already happening. We didn't make this up. We're just now trying to scale it up and apply it directly to the climate emergency. These initiatives help everyone in the pop in the community, both uh, children, adults, working age adults, and older adults, develop their capacity, strengthen their capacity for mental wellness and resilience for all types of adversities. Um, and there's a couple of, we can get into the specifics of, of what those uh, community-based initiatives need to focus on, but the difference between this and, a, uh, uh, and is a public health approach, between a public health approach and clinical treatment is, the primary focus is prevention first, healing methods are integrated into the prevention approaches, uh, and it focuses on the entire population not just, quote, unquote, the most vulnerable or those that are uh, showing signs of uh, symptoms of pathology. And it really uh, tries to strengthen protective factors that exist already and form new ones rather than fixing deficit and problems in the community. So that's a public health approach, very different. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's very different than an individualized clinical treatment approach. Because that means everyone can can really benefit from this. And I want to say something, and this is my opinion, Bob, I just want to, is that there's a lot of, there's controversy over amongst some people. There's some people that don't believe that we are, are in a climate change emergency. But regardless of whether you believe that or not, most people that I've spoken with don't want people to suffer. And that if, you know, you may not believe that's true, but there's still hurricanes, floods, fires that are happening. And how can we come together as a common, as common people, right? No matter what we believe about why it's happening, to think about community-based approaches that are for the benefit of all people. I don't know, you know, how what you think about that, but I, I know that that does exist. And I think that doesn't change the fact that we need to come together and think about this act, like the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act that we're going to talk about now and why that's important. So I don't know if you have a comment to make about what I just said. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, Elaine, that when you really think about what these community-based initiatives do, they really sort of return the responsibility and the chance of building wellness and resilience uh, and, and help people flourish to communities, to neighborhoods and communities where it existed for most of human history and has the greatest chance for success rather than just making it the responsibility of professionals, trained, licensed professionals to help people with these issues. It's our job. And in fact, we all will benefit uh, when we do that. We will all have a chance to thrive. And also uh, by by taking that approach, what we find is much better success in addressing climate problems. Because people are now working together. It's not we're going to rely on this company or this specialist over there to figure out what we're going to do about it. We're all engaged because we all have a a role in it. Uh, When people who are directly affected by any change, when they are actively involved in the change process, you're going to get much greater chances of very constructive, positive outcomes. Well, I just want to say, I was when you first told me about Rep- representatives Paul Tonko and um, Brian Fitzpatrick, I was very encouraged because I think we'd have to almost be, you know, not living in America, not to know that there's so much divisiveness happening right now. And to think we have a Democrat and a Republican coming together in co-sponsorship um, to say, this is really an important act and we're co-sponsoring this. Can you tell us a little bit about how on earth did that happen? Well, yes, uh, that, that's a very good point. And yes, uh, there, he, uh, 
uh, Brian Fitzpatrick is a Republican from Pennsylvania, and he's the co-sponsor with uh, Representative Paul Tonko, who's a Democrat from New York. Um, and I think uh, uh, Representative Tonko and his staff deserve the credit for reaching out to uh, Representative Fitzpatrick and explaining this all to them. They, I think they have a relationship anyway. Um, so I think that they deserve that credit. Uh, and he deserves, Representative Kirkpatrick deserves the, the, the credit for understanding what's happening because uh, he's undoubtedly seeing the mental health impacts going on irregardless of climate change in his district uh, and knows we need to expand the way we approach these issues. So uh, I think uh, I think many Republicans understand this uh, politically. They're in a tight position for whatever reasons and they don't feel like they can talk about it uh, because they'll get criticized from certain, especially interest groups that have money, and et cetera. Um, but uh, I think we will grow out of this only because it's so obvious about what's happening. Uh, it's very hard when your district is impacted consistently by some type of adversity to just deny that it's happening. They might not use the term climate change. Who cares? Um, but I think, I think we're going to make progress here. Well, I just have to say, I have many members of my family that are Republican, and they really care about the mental well-being of their communities. And so I think that they are very happy to hear about this act and about coming together rather than not being divisive about this. So I just want to do a shout out to both of those representatives for coming together to bring this forward. So I'm hoping what we can do, we'll start a little bit before our break and talking about what is the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act and really kind of find out what the purpose is and a little bit of the nuts and bolts so that our listeners can understand. Because what I understand is one of the things we would encourage people to do if they think this is a worthwhile um, idea to bring you to your community we're hoping that people are going to call up their legislators and say, hey, this is a very important act for you to take a look at. And, you know, would you consider co-sponsoring it? So I know that's one of the things that is our joint kind of idea, <laughs> mission. I don't know, the ITRCs that, you know, could we get um, a groundswell of support for this so that we could have these resiliency um, um, ideas that will be all over the country? So um, do you want to say a little bit, just to start, is what is the purpose? The purpose is to uh, that the federal government and CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, it specifically would support and fund community-based initiatives that organize broad and diverse coalitions and use a public health approach to build population-level capacity, that is, help everyone build their capacity for wellness and resilience in the midst of all types of adversities. Doing that is going to prevent a tremendous number of mental health and psychosocial problems and help heal them when they do occur. Uh, so that's what this is, the act is about. There's more specifics about it, but it's really trying to mobilize and inspire and engage communities through diverse partnerships to reach out to all adults and all youth uh, and help them develop the skills and develop the resources, strengths, and other protective factors that can help them prevent and heal mental health and psychosocial problems. Well, that sounds like an easy thing to do. No Not problem. <laughs> no problem. So, I, you know, so let me ask you this. Um, and here I am. I'm a person. I live in a community. I live in Southern California, which we have had, you know, fires, floods. We've had, you know, earthquakes. We get a lot of stuff out here. 
Um, so how could, like me as one person who lives within a community, how would I be able to get involved with the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act? Would one person be able to get involved with it or, or not? Yes, um, uh, good question. First of all, backing up, there are many initiatives like this underway around the country. So we can learn from how they got organized, what the kind of work they do, uh, et cetera. The, the state of North Carolina has many different coalitions being organized at either the community, somewhere at the county level, which just makes sense at a rural area. Um, uh, and there's many other ones, and we, we can talk about some of them uh, in a second. But what an individual can do is search around your community and see if there is an initiative like this underway uh, and see if you can join one and help. Or if not, start talking to two or three other friends, colleagues, et cetera, Talk about what a resilience coordinating coalition could do. What's, what do you see happening in your community already with mental health issues? Are things uh, 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 siloed and fragmented or different organizations working with, in different places, but nothing's coordinated? Uh, and then build a common vision from there about what you would like to see this coalition do and start talking to others and build it outward. That's how so, they all start. So, Bob, do you think that a lot of the people who are working with these ideas are siloed? So they're not necessarily talking to one another, but they're kind of doing their little piece in this part of the county or in that part of the county, but they're not necessarily in this kind of organizing movement that I think this Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act is really espousing. And that's one of the key components of, of the act, bring, that's right. bringing people together. That's one of the, the, the fragmentation and the siloing is very significant in almost every community. And most of the work that is going on is a reactive response to a problem, addiction, adverse childhood experiences, community violence. The mental, Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act flips that around and makes it proactive, focused on building prevention to prevent those problems from happening. And that means helping everyone uh, develop those resilient skills, make social connections across boundaries, which we can talk about, which is really the most important part. You mentioned it earlier uh, as you talked. Uh, so there's a number of elements involved with proactive, systemic, systematic prevention versus the reactive treatment approach, which is t- tends to dominate uh, most community programs, and even they are often siloed. Uh, so it's very, it's, it's it, th- those programs will be more effective, as I said, if they come into and become integrated with the community-based prevention-focused, that is, popu- uh, pr- public health-focused mental wellness and resilience initiatives. Well, so I want to continue this conversation. We're going to take a break in just a minute. Um, and I want to really kind of tease this apart and talk about more elements of the act and, and also things like, you know, why do we think it's, it's, you know, you're giving us some ideas of why we think it's needed. But I also, I'm thinking as you were talking just even about the opioid crisis. I mean, this kind of prevention is not only about the climate emergencies, but it's about these other in, environmental emergencies. When I look at the degree of opioid um, um overdoses that are happening in the country and do you think that this also could help perhaps build in infrastructure for that terrible problem that we're facing right now i think it can uh there people who are already experiencing that kind of uh disorder will continue to need uh direct service or clinical treatment programs that that is going to continue to be vital 
But the more they're integrated into the community-based initiatives, the more chances they have to build relationships with other people that they don't know, that are healthier or more resilient, that might help them with these. And they can also engage in group and community-minded healing opportunities, which is different than individualized clinical treatment. Well, and I'm also thinking about prevention, that if you are involved with a community that is socially engaged, you may never ever get addicted to something. That's exactly right. And so this is, I mean, so I think that I hope our listeners are hearing the implications of this act could be incredible and immense that could affect many sectors of our society and many of the issues that people are struggling with. So we are going to be back in just a couple minutes, and we are going to continue this really exciting conversation with Bob Topelt to tease apart a little bit more of the elements of the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act. So this is Elaine Miller Karras, and we will be back and we will be back shortly after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at Resiliency within.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. So this is Elaine miller Karras, and I'm here with Bob Doppelt, who's talking about um, the um, International Transformation Resilience Coalition, the ITRC, and a new piece of legislation that was just introduced um, last week. 
and I'm going to call it the CMWRA because it is also a very long name, but why don't you say what the CMWRA stands for, Bob? Let's hear it again. Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act. Okay, I love that. So when we think about this this act, um, we've already been talking about it before the break about what what problems that could be um, structured to address, but I think there's more. And so I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit more information. Uh, You know, I'm thinking about, I'm a community member and I love this act and I want to go and start talking it up to people that I know. And maybe even I'll call up my, my, my legislator and say, Hey, have you heard about this? And I want to talk to you about it. What would be some of the key talking points of what I would want to say to my legislator who might say, Hey, okay. I want to know more about that. Great. Well, thank you for that question. Um, uh, yes, uh, uh, I just uh, as for a purely uh, political statement here, the, the if any of your reader or listeners can contact their legislators and ask them to uh, contact Representative Paul Tonko or Brian Fitzpatrick and uh, and co-sponsor, agree to co-sponsor the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act. That would be fabulous. They should be able to find it now, the, the act on the congressional website. They, they have their own internal uh, website. They can find that. Uh, and where there is already a growing number of uh, co-sponsors, but we need to get a large number to then get a hearing uh, and move this this act forward. So uh, that's just the, the process. But I think what what's important is to think about the, the key elements involved with building community resilience, resilience within the community for the entire population. One is to build strong social support networks across geographic, racial, and cultural boundaries uh, in, the, in the community. That's a critical aspect, probably the most important about building resilience. And it counters and will address the toxic social isolation but so many people are experiencing today that really does contribute significantly to the mental health problems we're seeing all over Western nations and increasingly in other countries too. Um, the, the internet contributes to that with despite all its benefits um, uh, and the pandemic really aggravated that even more with the social isolation, but this has been growing for a long time. Uh, and so there are many ways that community-based initiatives can bring people together, help people meet each other and connect with each other. I can give you a few examples of communities that are doing that in a second, but that's just one kind of benefit you can talk about. We can build social connections and supports in our community if we enact this policy, get funding in our community to organize and operate these community-based initiatives. Well, you know, Bob, could you give us an example of um, some communities that have kind of are already doing this and are working towards uh, building resilient communities? Sure. And there's uh, there's many, many examples, but just in terms of uh, building social connections across boundaries, for example, two that stand out, there's many doing it, but one is uh, Abundant Community Edmonton up there in Edmonton, Canada. Uh, and you can get on the web and Google it. Uh, and what they do, uh, they realized that those social connections were vital. So they actually went out and recruit block connectors, people living on each block who they train and how to go around, knock on the door of every other uh, person living on the block, every other house and apartment, and they interview them and find out 
who they are, what their passions are, what they like to do, what their concerns are. They put that all into a database and share it with everybody. So people who like to do woodworking didn't know that the person down the street also likes to do woodworking, and they meet each other and they can start to do woodworking together. And uh, people who go out early in the morning for long walks now realize that there's others uh, somewhere close to them that like to do morning walks also for exercise with their dogs, and they meet those people and go out and do that. That is really building the social connections uh, within uh, Edmonton, uh, and they, this has grown, uh, and it's really a very, very powerful pro. And they've done research shows the effectiveness of that. Uh, the San Francisco Neighborhood Empowerment Program in San Francisco takes a different approach, but does the same thing. They hold block parties, they close off the street, and they ask and they train people, give them information about how to organize a block party to get everybody together for potlucks, et cetera, and you get to meet your neighbors. And from that, they, they get a, a group together to develop a resilience strategy for the community, for the neighborhood, when there might be any kind of adversity, could be an earthquake, could be a climate-related diversity, could be violence in the community. And they have a strategy that's also linked with organizing resilience hubs in the neighborhood, a place where people can go uh, to buy food, shelter, water, or connect with others in the midst of adversities. Those are just two examples of, and there's many others, of very exciting programs that are just working on the social support side of it. And there's well, other you know, And I think I remember, I don't know if this is a San Francisco group, but at one of the conferences that we did before the pandemic, there was a gentleman that was talking about um, in San Francisco, that San Francisco has been used to a pretty cool climate and there are lots of elders that live in houses or apartments. And when they had a heat wave, there was no air conditioning. So there was a, because of these kinds of coalitions, they were able to somehow get air conditioning units, portable ones, take them to the units where the elders were living because believe it or not, in America, people die from being overheated when they're old and when they're in, um, kind of climate change that can happen when all of a sudden it's, you know, 100 degrees out when it's used to being 70 or 60 degrees. So is is that, did that come out of that San Francisco group, Bob? That's what I'm reminded. Yeah, I think that is that. San Francisco Neighborhood Empowerment Program, the NEN as they call it. Uh, they do that kind of work. But that, those social connections, once you get to know and meet other people, you develop what we what, what's called weak and strong social connections. The, the weak, the strong ones are your f- close family, friends, and neighbors. You start to give, but then the weak ones are people, you know, the, the seniors that live uh, down the block that don't have air conditioning or whatever it might be. And you start to, people start to help each other. They know, oh, wait a second, so-and-so's in, in, in that apartment's not mobile. It's, it's a really bad time now. Let's go see if they need help getting somewhere to like to a resilience hub or something like that. So you build those connections that are vital in disasters and they're also vital just in normal times. They help connect people and avoid that toxic uh, isolation, social isolation that's really a mental health problem. Well, when I saw what was happening in Florida, um, it was clear to me that many of the people that died in um, in Florida were over the age of 60. Right. And, and were there reasons why they could not leave their housing because they didn't have transportation, they weren't able to be able to do that. And we do see that in many parts of the world that the people that are, um, who have the lack of mobility, it's hard for them to respond to disasters. Absolutely. And so... 
those kind of initiatives then become so important that you have able-bodied people helping those that may need extra help. Right. And then when, when you help others, you also know that if you needed help, someone would help you too. Uh, and it becomes a community building. It's a collective efficacy is the buzzword that we use in our field, but the social efficacy, that community comes together to help everyone. Uh, and what we often see when that happens, when you take the time to build those connections slowly, it takes a little time, um, uh, but it is that people who initially didn't like each other or thought they didn't like each other <laughs> because they looked or acted or thought differently or said, suddenly develop relationships. You overcome this polarization. Um, and you might not agree with them politically uh, down the road, but you, you start to help each other and work each other. We just see it everywhere where these kind of initiatives are going on. And that can be extremely powerful, not just for the climate emergency, but for all the other tensions and struggles that uh, uh, we're experiencing uh, around the world. Well, so I know that you have five core foundational areas in the ITRC research that have been identified um, regarding community initiatives that we need to focus on to build population level capacity for mental wellness and and transformational resilience. I think you're probably just naming one of them, but could you could you expand upon that? Because I think it's so important for us to know the ingredients. Right. Well, thank you for that question. Yeah. So we kicked off two years ago, we kicked off an extensive research. We looked all around the world. I interviewed and we had grad students interviewing people everywhere uh, uh, saying, has anybody got an, uh, a strategies and approaches that uh, are effective for helping communities and individuals with ongoing persistent uh, traumas, uh, diversities, uh, adversities of many different kinds. And what resulted from that was, was the, uh, the identification of these five core foundational areas that community-based initiatives can focus on. The first and most important is just what I was talking about. Build social connections, supports across geographic, economic, cultural, racial boundaries. The second is what we call building, it focused on a just transition uh, by building uh, healthy, safe, and resilient um, uh, uh, economic conditions, physical built conditions, meaning housing, uh, transportation systems, uh, parks, et cetera, uh, and ecological conditions. Um, all of those factors, uh, when they're in bad condition, they really affect mental health problems. And when you engage residents in improving those, uh, we find uh, uh, great evidence that that increases the capacity for mental wellness uh, and resilience. The third is what we call like increasing or developing population level mental wellness literacy. That is, that builds on health literacy, helping everyone understand how trauma and toxic stress can affect their mind and body and emotions, and how trauma and toxic stress affect groups. It causes groups to just get all riled up and attack others, et cetera, et cetera, because of the fear and alarm center of our brain being activated. Uh, and there's many groups that teach people about this in age and culturally appropriate ways. So people go, oh, I know what's happening within me now. Uh, and then you teach them skills like the Trauma Resource Institute does all over the world to first calm their body, minds, and emotions. We call them presencing skills to become more present. And then once people have that, which is trying to create some space between what's happening to you and your reaction to it, 
to give you a little space to decide what the best way is to respond. Then also focusing on what we call purposing skills, which are really is how do you want to live your life now in the midst of adversity? What's your purpose? And they're, they're in psychology, it's adversity-based growth skills. Uh, so that's the third. The fourth is what we found is many communities focus and try to engage community members in a set of activities that that is really clear, the evidence shows, helps support mental wellness and resilience. So one is laughing a lot, finding ways in the midst of ongoing adversity to, to laugh at things. And there are actually some community resilience organizations and programs that have developed laughing programs, uh, programs to help people find humor in things. Uh, there's also finding compassion for others and forgiveness, learning, helping everyone learn forgiveness skills for themselves. Because when we're stressed, we often do things that uh, impact other people um, uh, in an adverse way. So we have to forgive ourselves. We have to forgive others when they impact us. But that doesn't mean let people off the hook. It just means forgiveness is about helping ourselves deal with issues. And there's some other practical experience of that. Uh, and the last one is uh, what I was mentioning before. Uh, the fifth is really to integrate and, and uh, communities need to establish a wide range of age and culturally appropriate methods for uh, people to heal the traumas they do experience. When residents engage in those other four activities that I talked about, many prevent mental health problems or are able to heal them when they do emerge. But there still is the climate emergency worsens going to be many people who are traumatized. And I'm not talking about clinical treatment. That will be one part of it. But the more important area is community-based and group-minded initiatives, healing circles, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, approaches like the Trauma Resource Institute does often and training people in different resilience skills. Um, there's uh, art therapy, nature-based therapy, and many other approaches. And you really have to sort of say, what, what resonates with residents in our community or in this neighborhood? And establish those programs on an ongoing basis, not just after a disaster takes place or, or some sort of community event takes place. So those are the five. And uh, there's programs like this all over the world. Uh, communities can, inter can learn from them, integrate that, and really become a powerful factor in their community. Well, and you know, Bob, as you're talking, it's very hopeful what you're talking about. And I've spoken to many people that are very worried about our planet. And sometimes that worry can take us into dark and depressed places. And I had someone say to me not too long ago saying, I, I don't know, you know, it just, I'm so depressed that sometimes I don't even know if I should keep living if this is what's happening around us. And of course, you know, my role in, in that particular conversation was to make sure she was okay. But I think that when I can start to talk to people about what else is true, yes, we have this emergency happening with all these climate emergencies, but we have people like you, like members of the TRC working to create these population-based ideas and, and really trying to implement them, it really is the hope of human beings, right? That we have a way and a strategy and ways that we can come together that are actually already being done. And some of it may just be replicating what other people are doing. And I was thinking as you were talking, I want to know what questions those people in Edmonton are using to ask their neighborhood. Because I'm going, well, I imagine some people don't want to share. But I mean, just the idea of do you have a template 
that is there going to be a, is there a place that we can go to and say, oh, this is what they're doing in Edmonton. And I know that you're in the process of creating a new website. And can you talk to us a little bit about on the new website? Is there going to be opportunities for us to look at some of those um, communities like Edmonton that are creating these kinds of uh, opportunities for their citizens? Yeah, by the way, just get on the Edmonton uh, Abundant Community Edmonton website and you'll find their manual with the questions. All right. So All right. There you go. Great. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and Howard Lawrence and his staff really do a great job up there. Um, there's, uh, there's ample resources. Yeah, we, we're, we've been delayed in creating our new website, but there'll be many, many resources up there. We're running a community of practice right now. Um, on these hey, skills. What, what is that? Let's, let's, tell, let's tell them what that is because even though that's already happening, there's going to be more in the future. So right. tell us exactly what that is. It's when people come together from, and there's people involved with our, this community practice from the U.S., Canada, all sorts of play, people, uh, places in the uh, uh, EU um, it, to learn about the principles and practices of a public health approach to mental wellness and resilience. Uh, hear from practitioners in the field doing different parts of this, um, uh, and then go out and apply it in their own community, come back and say, oh, I'm having this problem with this, or how can you help me with this, and really trying to grow this uh, activity, these, these activities and this movement. Um, uh, and at the same time, uh, as you mentioned, I do have a book coming out. When we were interviewing people and finding all these interesting uh, programs, uh, people said, well, is there a manual for how to do this? And that's what led me to write the book. It wasn't initially the idea. Uh, so it's basically, it's a how-to guide. Uh, I thought, as you did about your book, it was going to be done and ready in, in January, <laughs> but it's not. Now it's March, as, as we've late, just been told. But it's out there. But there's a number of different documents on the ITRC website. Uh, and it'll get better if I ever get a, if we get a chance to finish it in the month uh, to to provide more information. So um, and if anybody has uh, questions about these kind of things, tell me about this kind of program or whatever. Email us at tr at trig hyphen cli dot org. Tr at trig hyphen cli dot org, and uh, one of our staff can send information to you about it. Uh, and, and and also and the website. Tell them the name of the website because I think they can get to your email through the website. That you well, have just Google now. the International Transformational Resilience Coalition, and it'll come up. It's actually the Resource Innovation Group website, which is the nonprofit that sponsors the ITRC. But that's when the new website will just be ITRC. Um, so, and you're right, it's a, that's a mouthful, but it took about, I don't know if you were part of it, uh, I I know, two, 200 emails back and forth, uh, <laughs> between folks trying to decide on the name of the organization. But what we mean by transformational resilience, and let me just follow this up really quickly, All right. is that it's not about bouncing back to, um, the, you know, where you were before, uh, before a disaster or adversity hit you. We know that there are ways and skills and procedures that can help people use adversities and crisis as powerful uh, catalysts to increase well-being, to increase collective and individual well-being. That's why we call it transformational resilience. How do we use the climate crisis actually as a powerful catalyst to help us all end up better off in the long run while we deal with these uh, adversities that the climate crisis is going to generate and is already generating. And we know we can do it. We, we have proof. We have seen it around the world that this can improve our well-being. The question is, can we, how do we develop that movement to really focus on that? 
Well, and I just want to say that what I've seen is that um, the way that we're approaching this through the ITRC is that it is empowering. It is not forgetting the suffering, but it's also Absolutely. remembering what I often say on this show, and my, my regular listeners will have heard this before, what else is true? And what right. can we pull together, which actually is very hopeful. So um, I cannot believe this has gone again. Sometimes my my time just slips through my fingertips. We only have a few minutes left. And Bob, I'm just wondering, what it, what would you like to say as kind of like a parting statement of what you would like our listeners um, to think about, to know about the ITRC and also about this very important um, act? Well, good question. I think that the bottom line for me is to for each of your listeners to look around their neighborhood and their community and see how they can join with some others. Who else can you join with to give a dialogue going about how to develop a coalition, a network in your community that begins to help everyone increase their capacity for resilience for ongoing adversities. Look for organizations that already exist, talk to them. Uh, there might not be one, or they might just be in the reactive treatment mode, uh, and really try to grow this movement all over. Uh, and part of that is going to require funding. That's partly what the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act will do. But you can also go out to local funders, donors, members in your community and seek funding, or to your city, uh, or to their state, and ask them. To, to do that. I know that uh, and where I live in Oregon, we're talking with uh, some state representatives about enacting a similar policy to the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act at the federal level at the state level. Go talk to your legislators there uh, and get that same kind of program going there. So get these kind of initiatives underway, learn about it, get them underway, uh, and at the same time, push for changes at the policy level. Uh, and the more that people get involved with activism, both in the mental wellness and resilience field, but also just uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and restore ecological systems uh, because they're vital to the climate emergency. The more people get engaged with both of those and link those together in communities, right now they're siloed. People doing resiliency, uh, resiliency work and people doing greenhouse gas emissions, link those together we will create a powerful force. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob, for your time today. And I also want to do a shout out as we're ending to Representatives Paul Tonko and Brian Fitzpatrick for the work they're do- doing in a bipartisan way to bring this very important um, Community Mental Wellness and Resiliency Act forward. And also, um, I also want to do a shout out to Bob's book, um, It's called Preventing and Healing Climate Traumas, A Guide to Building Resilience and Hope in Communities. And again, it's going to be available in March 2023. But he has another book called The Transformation Resilience, How Building Human Resilience for Climate Disruption Can Safeguard Society and Increase Well-Being. And that's already published, and it's a good read. So, Bob, again, thank you. And listeners, remember what else is true. We can come together as a common humanity, as, as people working together to solve these very difficult problems that our world is facing right now. And for all of you who are suffering, all the folks in Florida, Kentucky, Pakistan, Puerto Rico, um, all the fires that have been happening all over the country, there's there's too many to name. Just know that we are thinking about you. We're thinking about proactive ways to um, to help our citizens of the world. So again, remember what else is true in also your own individual life. 
and who uplifts you, who brings you calm that can help in that calming that very often then can provide ideas for solutions to our life's problems, our families and societies. So Bob, thank you so much. Thank you and thank all of you. Good luck to everybody. Thank you. Signing off, Lane Miller-Karras for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.